You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Lucinda Larnock. This is the WFHB Local News 4, Thursday, December 2nd, 2021. Later in the program, WFHB's Youth Radio hit the streets of Bloomington to interview locals on the events that occurred at the Astro World Festival last month. That's coming up in the newly revived segment, Voices in the Street. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB News speaks to an IUPUI researcher who discusses parents' attitude on the COVID-19 vaccine. More in today's headlines. But first, your State House Roundup. From WFHB, this is the State House Roundup for Thursday, November 18, 2021. I'm Benedict Jones. Indiana lawmakers canceled a one-day session to hear a bill that would make it harder for private businesses to mandate the COVID-19 vaccine at workplaces throughout the state. After backlash from critics, Governor Eric Holcomb announced that he will extend the state's public health order by another 30 days. This marked a walk back from last week when the governor said he wanted to end the health order responsibly by passing three statutory measures. Those measures included continuing enhanced federal matching funds for Medicaid expenditures, receiving federal food assistance, and the ability to vaccinate 5 to 11-year-olds. Holcomb said even though the state will move forward without those changes, he will continue to work with House Speaker Todd Houston and Senate President Pro Tempore Roderick Bray to end the public health order in the future. In a statement, House Speaker Todd Houston said, quote, Over the next month, we'll continue to listen and talk with stakeholders about our policy proposals and we'll file legislation in the near future. Hoosiers can rest assured that we'll hit the ground running come January 4th, end quote. Meanwhile, Indiana Democrats criticized GOP lawmakers saying that the special session was a partisan attack on COVID-19 vaccines. Lauren Ganapini, executive director for the Indiana Democratic Party, said in a statement, quote, Indiana Republicans embarrassed themselves and the state government when they tried to cancel out the necessary tools needed for businesses and Hoosiers to fight COVID-19. Republicans are quickly proving that they are the party that's bad for business, and it's because they would rather put their extreme partisanship ahead of creating a better future for Hoosiers." In proposed legislation for the special session, lawmakers would require businesses to allow exemptions for pregnancy, anticipated pregnancy, and for religious regions. The preliminary draft of the bill will also state that employees can submit to weekly testing if they do not want to get the vaccine. Furthermore, the bill said that an employer cannot deny an employee's request for exemption. Although the state's public health order has been extended, 
The issue is certainly not over, as lawmakers will convene for the 2022 legislative session in January of next year. Over 3,000 Afghan refugees have resettled throughout the United States after being temporarily housed at Camp Atterbury. Camp Atterbury is located in Johnson County, Indiana, and it serves as a training base for the Indiana National Guard. Nearly three months ago, the base was selected as a location to temporarily house evacuees fleeing Afghanistan after the Taliban takeover. Nahid Sharafi says she came to Camp Atterbury in early September and her journey has been, quote, long and scary. Sharafi fought back tears as she explained that she was separated from several family members during the evacuation. However, she says she's excited for her new life in the United States. I'm very excited that I start my new life in the Indiana and where I hope that to continue my study in Bloomington University. I have a message to the people of the United States and I want to say that people of the United States has a heart of the gold. Thank you so much for everything. I'm sure that in different and in difficult condition, they never leave Afghan people alone. I'm sure that since I came to the Adderbury camp, I learned many things from them, especially from the army, especially from the Department of State. You know that they behave very patiently and justly with Afghan people. And we learn many things of them. Thank you so much for everything. And I hope that I can make the world around me better place for others like them. Thank you so much. Since September, Camp Atterbury has brought in over 7,000 refugees, less than 10% of the 82,000 people who have relocated in the United States as a part of Operation Allies Welcome Initiative. As of now, roughly 250 people have permanently resettled in Indiana. State officials said the goal is to resettle over 700 people throughout cities in Indiana, such as Bloomington, South Bend, Fort Wayne and Indianapolis, among others. Indiana residents can still donate items for Afghan refugees at eight locations throughout the state. For more information, you can visit teamrubiconusa.org resettlement. That's all for the State House Roundup. For WFHB News, I'm Lucinda Larnock. On December 1st, at the Bloomington City Council meeting, the council discussed approving a sibling city partnership with Palo Alto, California. Bloomington Mayor John Hamilton introduced the resolution and explained why he supports it. Um, A domestic sibling city, a a relationship, a pairing between cities within the United States uh, is a new idea, uh, new to me, uh, and I think new to to most of us. Um, You'll hear shortly from Vicki Venker, who has been one of the really the leading voices about this uh, and trying to move this forward in the country. And, And you'll hear more. But the idea really is to help knit our country back together, help create relationships kind of across different regions of the country. We all know how much um, stereotyping and, and sense of uh, division that we can see in different ways uh, within our own country. And, and I have to tell you, when I first heard of this concept, I loved it. The idea of, of uh, municipalities, uh, communities in the country, uh, helping to do our work at the ground level to build relationships, uh, knit us together, create linkages that will strengthen our communities, but frankly, also our country. 
Palo Alto Mayor Tom Dubois said that he was excited about the city's sharing ideas and forming relationships. Founder of Sibling Cities USA, Vicki Venker, attended Indiana University and lives in Palo Alto. She believes both cities have a lot to offer to each other. And I truly believe that if Americans get to know each other better, we will get along better. So Sibling Cities USA provides a framework for these relationships. We call it the three C's of connection, community, commerce, and civil discourse. The first, uh, community, involves community groups, students, and more getting to know each other. The second, commerce, allows the business communities to compare notes and explore opportunities. And then once we get to know each other, the third, civil discourse, will help us have respectful conversations across the miles to build understanding around the tough issues facing our nation. Sibling Cities USA has a national advisory board that can help. It includes a former cabinet secretary and a former national NAACP president. Three of our advisors have led national bridge building organizations and two others are renowned professors with expertise in gender equity, class issues and civil rights. So these two cities would be the first city pair, but not the last. During public comment, President of the Economic Development Corporation, Jen Pearl, supported the connection with Palo Alto and said the technology and innovation aspects are growing in the region and could benefit from this. Bloomington resident Greg Alexander expressed concern over the city's partnership with Palo Alto, which he said he didn't want anything to do with. I, I honestly, even though I listen to all that, I, I, I guess I just don't know what, what the point is. Um, I kind of, I don't know if you all will catch this South Park reference, but um, I feel like it's like step one dot com, step two question marks, step three profit. You know, it's like somehow by affiliating ourselves with Silicon Valley, we're all going to get rich. Um, I, I don't want that. Um, I'm a computer programmer by trade. So are a lot of my friends. And so when I was a recent college graduate, I visited San Francisco and Santa Cruz and Mountain View and San Jose and all that stuff a, a bunch of times. Um, and a lot of my friends moved there. Every last one of those friends, um, as they became mature, even if they didn't have kids, as they became mature, they, they left the Bay Area because it just costs so much. Um, it's not a city I want to emulate. It's a city I, I consciously decided not to move to. Council member Steve Volan supported the partnership but acknowledged Alexander's concerns. I generally tend to look for uh, cities that are more like Wilmington in that they are uh, standalone metropolitan areas, whereas Palo Alto is part of a, a large metropolitan area. But I think that is why we can learn something from them because you know, they, they, as part of a larger metropolitan area, there are some things that are different. Um, you know, I'm not gonna deny some of the things Mr. Alexander said about the city, it is very expensive. Uh, but I mean, you know, in case nobody's checked, there's a nationwide housing crisis. Housing is very expensive here as well. Um, I think that all in all, this is a, a good opportunity to learn from a city that is, in fact, comparable to us. President Jim Sims and Councilmember Isabel Piedmont-Smith also supported the partnership. The city council voted unanimously to approve the Sibling City Partnership. Several weeks ago, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration approved an emergency youth authorization for children ages 5 to 11 to receive the Pfizer vaccine against COVID-19. 
So far, about 62,000 Indiana residents in that age group have received at least one dose of the vaccine. Nia Menukemi, Director of Health Policy at IUPUI, says he expects that number to climb in Indiana. Yeah, I uh, definitely expect those numbers to climb. Uh, I know we're only in the first few weeks since that's been approved. My 11-year-old daughter is among those 60-some-odd thousand Hoosiers that got their first dose. In fact, she got her second dose today. I think there's just, you know, the timing of the holidays, The some parents just wanting to wait a couple of weeks just to see if there's any snafus with the rollout. I expect that number to continue to climb. How high it goes, I think, is another question uh, that's still open-ended. Menu Kemi touched on how some parents may want their children to get vaccinated, while others may remain sceptical. I, I think there's a lot of misinformation out there, and I think it's been challenging on parents to try to gather information from trusted sources in a way to make the personal decision on what to do with their child. I think some people have access to the expertise and to the you know accurate information more so than others. And I think it's the responsibility of lots of us, whether it's in the research world, in the clinical world, or even in the journalistic world, to make sure that people have access to accurate information. Schools often require vaccines, but it varies state to state on which vaccines are mandated. For instance, common required vaccines include measles, chickenpox and hepatitis. Menachemi says that given the hyperpartisan divide over the vaccine, he believes that mandating the code vaccine in schools may not be the best idea. However, he postulates that it's a matter of time before the vaccine will be a requirement in school. I, I think, you know, there's so much unease right now about this issue that even though I personally would be supportive of schools making that kind of decision, I don't know that it's the right time quite yet. I think we need the rollout to continue to go, let people do it voluntarily. I think eventually when, you know, the vaccine gets full authorization for the 5 to 11-year-olds and is not just on emergency use, I I think it'd be maybe time to reconsider that or think about it further. But I, I just think it's premature, despite my personal belief that I wouldn't have a problem with it if my child's school said do it, because obviously I've already said we've done it. But I think we need to tread lightly not to turn people off with the wrong message of, you know, this is required. I think right now, I think about the vaccine no different than I think about seatbelts and car seats for children. You know, if you go for a ride with a child who isn't seatbelted, they might not have any bad outcome. You know, you're not, you might not get into a crash, and if you do, they might not get hurt. That doesn't mean you'd want to take that chance. And so right now, I think the time is to let parents make the decision what's best for their kids. And for me and my family, it's been to vaccinate, you know, our children. And so we'll get to a time when, you know, we can revisit whether it should be on one of the required vaccines in schools that we're not there yet. He says that this is a difficult time for students having to wear a mask or abide by social distancing protocols. Regardless, he believes that getting the vaccine is the first step back to normalcy in schools. I I definitely think it's part of how we get back to normalcy. You know, when you think about it, the vaccines in adults and even in the older kids have been working exceptionally well. If you even look at the Indiana State Department of Health's website and you look at what proportion of 
vaccinated people have ever gotten a breakthrough infection, it's a very small percent, one or 2%. And when you look at what proportion of vaccinated Hoosiers have been hospitalized, it's a fraction of 1%. When you look at what proportion have died, it's an even smaller fraction. And it's concentrated in high-risk individuals, mostly above a certain age that we would consider senior citizens of the state. With that said, the vaccines are working so well that if you are vaccinated, you're by and large back to pre-pandemic levels of worry as it pertains to, let's say, the flu in 2019. So your chance as being fully vaccinated of dying of COVID is roughly similar, maybe even a little bit better than what it was of the flu in 2019. And if we use 2018-2019 flu season as what quote-unquote normal feels like, vaccines get us there. Now, why are we still masking? Uh, Why are we still masking in the schools? It's in part because the only way to protect the unvaccinated from uh, infections and hospitalizations and death is to reduce infections. And how can you reduce infections if we're not utilizing vaccines except to go back to 2020 protocols? of social distancing and masking and hand hygiene and surface hygiene and all the things that we did last year. So if you're vaccinated, you're back to 2019 flu. If you're unvaccinated, you're actually worse off than 2020, you know, pandemic in part because the economy is now fully open. And so everyone is back intermixing with each other. And the Delta variant we know is more transmissible. And so it's even easier for an unvaccinated person to get infected today. So there's no question the vaccines put us on the road back to normalcy. In our fragmented media landscape today, people tend to get their news and information from unverified sources, often on social media. Manu Kemi says the best solution for someone who remains sceptical with the vaccine is to consult with your family doctor. I think one of the traditional important, respected, and trusted sources of health information for parents have been their child's doctor or healthcare provider. I almost wish we can, you know, get through all the noise on the radio and on social media and on TV and just have those one-on-one conversations. I, I, I am confident that many parents who ask their pediatricians or their family doctors or their nurse practitioners that take care of their kids, you know, year in, year out, what they think, I'm confident a very, very large percentage of them would encourage the parent to consider vaccinating their child. Anyone five years of age or older is eligible to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. To register for the vaccine, you can visit rshot.com in.gov or call 211. Up next, WFHB's Youth Radio hit the streets of Bloomington to interview locals on the events that occurred at the Astro World Festival last month in our newly revived segment, Voices in the Street. This is Voices in the Street, 
WFHB's monthly public opinion feature, providing the members of our community the opportunity to have their voices heard. This month, we interviewed local residents about the recent Travis Scott Festival tragedy, asking, what was a concert experience you'll always remember? I'll always remember is when Post Malone came to IU. Unfortunately, I had a terrible experience at that concert. It started to get really like scary because people were pushing forward. And there was a point I couldn't breathe. I started hyperventilating and I was like, I want to leave, I want to leave. And some people just were looking at me and not moving. And each and every one of us in that friend group had a really tough experience. So like people in crowds act in animal panic ways. So there's not. Concert that I literally just went to this past Friday. Um, it was a St. John concert. I got caught in the mosh pit. It was such like a surreal moment to be a part of it. And I loved it. The best part was like everyone was kind of making sure like, yeah, you're in the mosh pit, like you're still okay. That collectivism and like everyone making sure they were okay. Like it was just so great. Uh, sometimes I really don't feel safe just because, like, I'm not that tall. I do work out, but there's a lot of bigger people there than me. What did you think upon hearing about the tragedy? Who should be held responsible? Like, they were just fans and they wanted to see their music idol, and it's horrible that they weren't able to do that. I mean, I think everyone that had a position to do something was very aware of what was going on. And I think it's really shocking that nothing was stopped with as bad as it got. Yeah, I mean, I think it's insane. You got chains already and stuff, and you can't stop a show for your fans? For your young fans. These fans aren't even 30 years old. You see what I'm saying? A 10-year-old died. Over died. Travis freaking Scott, who doesn't care about him, never seen him a day in his life, because if he cared about him, he would have stopped the show. You don't do that to your people. Like, he just kept on performing, and it took forever to get emergency personnel there. <laughs> we talk about this every time someone else dies, frankly. It is problematic in so many ways. It's a problem for whoever is selling tickets, whoever is booking the venue, whoever is setting caps. There are so many things that went wrong and it kind of feels like everyone's gonna be able to pass that buck and be like, well. He's not really taking responsibility. He's just saying, I'll pay for the bills, the medical bills, the funerals, but that's where it stops. And I've seen, I even took some time to go see other people who had concerts where people have either like fainted or gotten hurt and been like, no, stop the show, like get them out. And to hear that he kept performing even after knowing that some people were passing out or like potentially already dead is like really disturbing. You know that artists can't really see beyond the first 10 rows because of the lights. So I think people need to think about it from both perspectives, but also understand that, hey, something did happen. And I think him and his team should take accountability for it because he created Astroworld and he kind of owes that to his fans. I mean, all parties, I think, have some fault. I think a lot of people think it's just Travis Scott's fault. I think part of it's his fault, but at the end of the day, the fans also made decisions to whatever be ridiculous. And it's also the venue's fault, in my opinion, too, because yes, they don't have the manpower, but they could have prevented that a long time ago, considering how packed they'll know Astroworld would be. It's very complicated to have an opinion because I feel people judge very easily. I know in the concerts, uh, a lot of time the people get faint. So how are you gonna know being the artist that the person is dead or faint or just overdose, so you have no idea. You get paid to make the concert. Also from the perspective of the artist, you wanna make the people happy. Of course he has some fault, but at the same time, it's very easy to judge, but you never know the reality. 
I've, I've heard that he's had allegations against him for like inciting like riots and ragers at his concerts. Um, but with Travis, I think when he puts his name on something like Astroworld, that's something you create, right? It's not a part of like Coachella or Lala. It's something that you create from the scratch. Since your name is tied to it, it's like your moral responsibility to understand the ins and outs of it or give it to somebody you trust to be able to understand that all aspects and all the fans that you create music for are going to be safe and actually have a good time. What could or should have been done to avoid this unfortunate occurrence? Maybe improving plans for like communication in the event of emergencies. It's a tragedy and I think that Travis Scott should have stopped the concert as soon as he saw the first ambulance coming through because it was just really unacceptable how long they continued the show after things were happening. He should have stopped. As, a, as somebody who was a producer, as somebody who has rapped on stage, I don't care how famous or how much money I am. One person gets hurt at my show, that's the end of the show. I can't have my fans thinking that I am the reason for their death. And there's I mean, I don't really know if Travis could see what was going on where what wasn't going on, but I still think that like other people that knew that something went wrong could have played a role or that there should have been protocols in place for that. I guess only like two people really had the power to like stop the concert. They weren't even in attendance. So I think like power should be given to the artists because obviously they're the only ones who can really see and like security can really see. I mean, artists have control through what happens throughout the concert because they can stop performing at any time. It might be a breach of contract, but at the same time, they have enough money to cover that breach of contract. The safety of others is more important than anything else. I, I, yeah, I think there could have definitely been better crowd control. I guess just cutting down the amount of tickets they sell maybe would help, but I mean, it's people broke in, right? So even if you increase security, I don't know. So I mean, it should have been stopped. Travis Scott, yeah, should probably be held somewhat responsible there legally, I would hope. So I feel like there could have been more thought going into like the planning of like the whole concert. There's not like, especially with artists like Travis Scott, there's not really much you can do to avoid that. My show, um, <laughs> I can only speak for myself because there's so many opinions out there. If it was my show, I would have stopped the show. What should concerts be like going forward? Uh, it should be like a safe place for people to like hang out, have fun, just like enjoy music instead of risking getting injured and, and just like badly hurt. Like, you shouldn't walk into a concert having to plan your escape route. If you have to go into some place, any place, thinking, like, how am I going to get out of here, then it's probably not a place you should go. But I think that concerts should have way more medical professionals available. They should have way more security guards available. And they should have a performer who cares about the lives of the people that attend their concerts. People just need to calm down. I don't know. I think concerts should be a place for like people to gather together and enjoy music. But there should just be more thought behind the whole process. Um, there should be enough space for you to get out if you want to get out. I mean, you shouldn't be fearing for your life. That's pretty insane. People shouldn't be dying. Concerts should be a fun time. There should be walking room at concerts. Um, making sure that there's breaks, making sure that the artists are having fun, the people are having fun, and then... It shouldn't be every man for himself. I'm not a big fan of seated concerts, but at this point, maybe that will be a good way to go. It just, there is very different concerts, so I'll say there's no way to do it. All interviews were conducted by Marty Abadi, produced and hosted by Wilder Mouton. This has been Voices in the Street, WFHB's monthly public opinion feature of candid, local commentary about our world today. Voices in the Street is a volunteer-powered joint production of our news department and youth radio program here on WFHB, 91.3 and 98.1 FM, 
Community Radio for South Central Indiana. listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Cade Young and Noel Hahusky schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Walder Moten. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Benedict Jones. And I'm Lucinda Larnick. Thanks again for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at wfhb.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters, WFHB, wherever you find your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at wfhb.org. You can become a WFHB local news volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB local news archive at wfhb.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB local news. We are local, longer, 